All right, how are we going? Can people hear me through the speakers? Is that all right? Excellent. Oh, I don't know if I'm, I'm a pacer or a, um, I don't know how I like to do this yet. I'm still kind of coming into my own little comfort zone of how I like to move me a little bit closer. There we go. I'm going to hide behind it a little bit. And still, still sit down, get my skinny jeans on, have a coffee. All right, so um, I'm just going to, I'll just pray real quick before we jump in. It's been a lot of prayer this morning. It's been awesome. I love talking to God, Father God. Thank you for this morning. I thank you for all the stuff you've been teaching me about Caleb and, and the encouragement that it was. And I just pray that some of that would get through this morning, that people would come to um, see you more clearly, that people would come to, to, um, to know you more, that they would push into you more, that we can have a look at the example of Caleb and, uh, and maybe apply some of that to our life. So would you help me this morning, Lord? that you'd be lifted up and glorified and that this message would be good for us as well. And right now, I pray. So, start off with a question. Who here has um, who's ever been in a situation where you've been asked to do something and you get a choice as to whether or not you should, but you know you should? Um, and there's a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe it's like a bit of a fearful kind of thing or an anxiety-inducing thing. Um, has anyone been in that situation? I'd like to tell you about a, a story of 10-year-old of Luke back in primary school. Um, one lunchtime, I found myself, I jumped over the, uh, the school perimeter fence, which is a big no-no, uh, and I was eating mulberries off the neighbor's um, mulberry tree. Uh, this was at Gavin Bar State School. There's kind of like this lower oval, and you go down a big embankment, and then down there there's this cool big drain that we used to throw like firecrackers and stuff in. And, and we jumped over the fence, and we're eating these ladies' mulberries. Uh, all the cool people were doing it. I wanted to fit in. The cool guys were there, and I didn't want to be left out. So I thought, well, why not? We'll, we'll go and do this. Um, so anyway, lunchtime bell rings, and we all go back to class. And about 20 minutes into class, the principal walks in uh, to our class, and I just, oh, that knot in my stomach. I was just like, okay, here we go. I think I know what this is going to be about. And he starts naming all of the people that had jumped the fence. Um, and then my name comes up and he's like, right, all you guys up to the principal's office, which as a 10-year-old is the scariest place. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, it turned out that the lady wasn't very happy with us being uh, eating her mulberries. And even more than that, it turned out that the school didn't really like the fact that we had left the school grounds. Uh, I guess technically that's not a great thing to do. Um, so the parents were, were rung and told, which... Now, I wasn't, like, I wasn't a super rebellious kid. I wasn't like a goody two-shoes, but like, I'd never really gotten in too much trouble before, and I just want to have a look at the age range. So, you know, stuff like that, when you look back on it, it's not actually that big a deal. <laughs> um, but anyway, my dad, uh, he gave me a choice, and he was like, do you want to go and apologize to this lady? Now, I knew what I was supposed to do. I knew what the right answer was, but I did not want to do it. <laughs> I didn't want to apologize to this lady. I was... You know, as a 10-year-old kid, it's a bit of a fairly daunting thing going to this kind of uh, lady that you, you don't really know. Uh, you know you've kind of been in the wrong, you're in trouble for it. Um, and I knew exactly what Dad was hoping that I would do, um, and, but, but he gave me the choice. So this was a choice that I had to make, um, and I didn't really want to do it. I did, I did end up going and apologizing to this lady now. Um, Back then, we had a, a green ute called Kermit the Frog. It was a Datsun. I remember this story so vividly. That ute was amazing. Um, but so we were, we were driving down to this lady who lived down behind Gabin Bar. We were living in the Welland Street at the time, which is kind of like near Audley Street. 
Um, and I remember we stopped at Kelly's Corner because I decided that I wanted to buy some chocolates for this lady as well. It was a bit of a, it was a, bit of a sorry <laughs> gift. Just really, I figured if I'm going to do this, I might as well go all out. Um, so anyway, we got to this lady's, lady's place and um, oh, the anxiety was growing. As a 10-year-old, this is fairly daunting, right? Um, so we got to this lady's place and um, my dad went in first just to make sure this lady wasn't completely crazy before this little 10-year-old kid came up and, and apologized and gave him the thing. So I'm sitting there in this little green ute and my dad walks around the corner so I can't see him and I know they're talking and I'm just sitting here going, oh, I really hope this lady's crazy so I don't have to go through with this. Dad's like, no, no, but unfortunately dad came around the corner and he waved me over I'm like, oh, okay, here we go. Here we go. So I came off and I came to this lady and I said, look, I'm really sorry I jumped I bought you some chocolates to say sorry. And she turned out to be the most lovely lady. Um, she, was, she, she wasn't actually concerned at all with this kind of um, jumping into her yard. She was just like, I just didn't know if that were poisonous or not. I just, I was, I was, <laughs> I, um, or like, I don't know, I don't eat too many mulberries, city kid. Um, so anyway, this lady was just, she'd reported us based on, like, she was just actually looking, which was, which was really, really cool. But the point is that I had a decision to make. And at that point in time, I did choose to go and do the hard thing. Uh, we'll come back to this story in a little bit because we're going to look at Israel and a decision that they had to make. Um, so we'll jump right into it. So just a quick, quick recap of where we're at. We've been going through the mega series. I know this is, this is the only slide I've got. Um, so, so don't, don't worry. But I'm such a visual learner. It was awesome, like, listening to this, uh, the sermons that these guys have done on, like, Moses and all these other Old, um, Old Testament characters and actually, like, seeing where everything happened. So you're really going to hate me for this, but this has even got a little laser pointer. <laughs> like, full presentation mode here. Uh, going for Rajee. So anyway, um, the Israelites started up here in Egypt, and we all know the story of the exodus out of Egypt. All the plagues came. Um, they were slaves for like 400 odd years, all these plagues came, Moses was going to lead them out of Egypt uh, and into the Promised Land, so they start up here, then they head over to the Red Sea and we know the story of them going through the Red Sea, God parting the ocean for them and then they go on this trek down to Mount Sinai, which is where we've been camped out a little bit over the last couple of sermons. There we, um, we see that uh, they get the commandments, the, the law from God, Moses up on the mountain to have that golden calf incident. There's a lot that's been going on for these guys. Um, and they finally spent, so they spent a, spent a year at Mount Sinai, roughly, and then they're going to head up to, it's time for them to pack up and leave and head to the Promised Land, which is this little bit up here. Um, and so what they're going to do is they're going to head to a place called Kadesh Barnea, which is this place. And this is where we're going to pick up the story in Numbers. We're going to be hanging out in Numbers 13 and 14. It's a fair bit of Bible reading in this this sermon, but it's a really good story, so it was really hard to cut bits out. Um, all right, so um, we pick up the story here at the very start, uh, Numbers 13, verse 1, as the Israelites have gathered on the southern edge of the Promised Land. So there's the southern edge, Promised Land. Uh, and we read, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Send men to spy out the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the people of Israel. From each of their tribe, uh, from each tribe of their fathers, you shall send a man, every one a chief among them. So I'm going to stop right there for just two. So I know I've read two verses, but what I want to point out is that it says in verse two, "Send men to spy out the land in Canaan, which I am going to give to the people." So I want to point out that God is explicitly stating here that He is going to give them this land right from the very start, right in the start of Exodus, when Moses was tasked with freeing the slaves. Um, 
It was always going to be that God was going to give them this promised land. Um, So we'll read on, verse 3. So Moses sent from the wilderness of Paran, according to the command of the Lord, all the men who were the heads of the people of Israel, and these were their names. Shemua, Shaphat, Caleb, Egal, Joshua, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Sethur, Nahabi, and Guel. You're welcome. We're not going to read all of those. Those out with their fathers and everything like that. There's 12 in total, but I want to point out that Caleb is one of them. Uh, there's another dude named Joshua. Ben's going to do a sermon on Joshua, who's also a bit of a standout, um, one of these spies. He'll be doing that next week. Reading on in verse 17. So Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan, and he said to them, Go up into the Negeb in this area, up in here. Um, Go up into the Negev, go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak, whether they are few or many and whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad and whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. Ripe grapes. So these spies head into, into the promised land. They're there for 40 days and they're sussing out all the people. They're sussing out all the cities. They find this massive bunch of grapes that is so big that it takes two people and a pole to carry this back. When was the last time you guys went to Coles and had, had to carry your grapes out on a pole? <laughs> like this land is pretty awesome. Um, so we're going to jump forward just a tiny bit to verse 25. and we're going. So they've been in the land, spying it out for 40 days. We're going to hear what the report is. At the end of 40 days, they returned, to spying out, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them uh, and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him, We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. It's a big honking thing of grapes. However, the people who dwell in the land are strong. And the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negeb. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and along the Jordan. So what, what do we know about this promised land so far? What are a couple of other things? It's bountiful. It's got big grapes. There's lots of people there. They're big people. They're giants. Yep. Fortified cities. That's excellent. You've got all of my three points. Um, so the land is good. It's flowing with milk and honey. They've got these huge grapes that you need two people to take out on a pole. So this land is really, really awesome. But the cities are fortified and large. So these are cities that are designed with the sole purpose to keep out offensive people. They're there to defend. They've got big walls, moats sometimes, gates, towers. Uh, if you're looking at these and you're on the offense, you're going to have a you're going to have a bad time. It's not it's not in your favor. We know that the sons of Anak live there. Now the sons of Anak are these descendants of the Nephilim, uh, and these Nephilim are like warrior-like people. That um, from Genesis we see that they came from when the sons of God uh, went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. So there's some uh, some people believe they're like these semi-divine beings. At the very, very least, the Bible talks about them as these heroes of old and these men of renown. Um, and some people even believe that like um, Goliath was like descended from these dudes. So these like they're, they're huge, physically large people that are known for being warriors. Um, so um, 
If we put ourselves in the shoes of the Israelites right now, we've been in slavery for 400 years, right? Haven't had really much hope. Um, we were lucky enough to get out of Egypt, but even that was we're fleeing from like people trying to kill us or like to capture us. Um, and, and we left in this... Um, I was trying to think about what it would have been like because you see all these plagues and stuff like that, and I imagine that it would have been like the, the Israelites would have been... I guess really happy that they were no longer going to be slaves, but they left in the midst of all this death as well, the death of all the firstborn sons of all the Egyptians and all this. So I just, I can't even, ah, like, it would be such a bittersweet kind of, kind of thing. At the very least, it's very, it's nothing like I've ever been able to experience. So then they go into the, uh, the hardships of wandering around in the wilderness. They're starving, they are thirsty. God is good and he provides them with manna from heaven and, and water from the rock and stuff like that. And they settle down. Um, at Mount Sinai for a little while. And then if you have a look at this, this journey um, up the top, I've got a little scale up there. So by my finger maths is about, uh, I think it was like 600 kilometers down here and 600 kilometers back up there. So I'm just using a little scale. So it's, it's a long, long time. It's, what was it? Oh, righto. Anyways, different size fingers. There we go. We'll put that up to um, difference in measurement units. Um, so this is like, these guys have had a pretty, pretty hard trot, right? And so they've had this awesome hope that God is going to give them this promised land and they're standing on the door of the promised land and they're looking in and the land is awesome, but there's some big challenges ahead. Um, so when I was thinking about this verse, one of the questions I had is that if God has constantly said that he is going to give them this land, why did God ask Moses to send in the spies to suss it out first? Why didn't God just go, uh, right, you're here, go and take it. I've told you I'm going to give it to you. Why, why did um, God ask Moses to send in these spies? Thoughts? Good, glad you're all stumped. Um, testing the hearts of the people. This is what I came to as well. So I think that the reason that God asked to send in the spies is so that the dangers of what they're about to do would be known and they would have to be weighed up against their confidence in God. So it would be very easy to just go, off you go, I'm going to give it to you. Um, not as easy. I think they're really going to test their confidence in God if it's, uh, hey, this land is yours, but look at everything. Like, I want you to see that this is dangerous. This is, this is real danger. These men and women were really facing their mortality as they look at these giants and this fortified city. So are they going to decide to put their confidence in God or are they going to decide to turn away? It's a decision. Tying back into my little story at the start. It's all linked. So what's interesting about this kind of question or this thought is that this uh, applies to us as well uh, in, in so many ways. So um, this could be as, as simple as just trying to talk to someone about God, right? So um, some of us find it like a little bit anxiety-inducing, a little bit scary to go out and talk to people. I know, especially at work, when I've got like all of my other workmates who are non-Christians standing around, I sometimes get that little clench um, in, in my tummy when I'm thinking of like, oh, this would be perfect to say something right now. Um, but then we kind of face the kind of the fear of the world and the fear of the man. And, um, and I guess in that moment, um, am I confident... In, in God and his promises enough that I would want to tell other people about them. If I was really confident in what God said, that he is the 
only way to eternal life. He uh, is who he says he was. He is, he is God. If I was super confident, does that make it a little bit easier for me to go and like, talk to people? I think it would. Um, so I think there might be a bit of a, a confidence thing there. There's also like, um, if you are having those kind of those doubts or those little anxieties, that kind of thing, are you confident that God is with you um, in those moments? So that's a decision you've got to make. You've got to weigh up the risk, the uncomfort, the uh, anxieties of, of the task at hand, and you've got to um, weigh that against your confidence in God and his promises. So this um, could be a financial thing. Um, I know... Uh, especially like when I was a uni student, I know people struggle with this uh, even at the moment that uh, if you look at your bank account and um, the money isn't really exactly where you want and you're wondering how you're going to pay your next rent or your utilities bill or your mobile bill or whatever it is, um, it's really easy to be discouraged. You wonder where this money is going to come from. Um, I've got a, a really cool story about God's provision that I want to share with you about six months ago. I was $16,000 in debt. Um, so not, not great. Um, I guess that's all relative because I'm sure like, some of you have mortgages and you're like, $1,000. So it's all, I know it's all relative, but for me, this was enough to just like, put me on that level of anxiety, having this kind of weighing over my head. Um, my dad had helped me out with some car problems that I had, uh, that I had, had so he gave me ten grand for um, some car stuff. I did my pilot's license and just to push it through at the end, I put six grand on my credit card. wasn't the greatest idea. Um, so I had the $16,000. Now, um, how long comes Nicole? And I'm not just thinking about myself anymore. I've got to put some money aside for a wedding. Um, so all of this, um, I don't know, all this kind of like anxiety of trying to pay off this, this money this, uh, and then having all these extra expenses kind of come on on top was, it was very anxiety inducing. Um, and I was lucky enough that I could pay off the interest on my credit card, but I just couldn't make a, like a, couldn't just get on top of the loans and stuff like that. Now, I just want to be clear that my love for Nicole and Nicole's love for me is not based at all on our financial position. <laughs> Both of us are definitely going to be married regardless of whatever, what, uh, what we have. I guess it's probably the, the, maybe my pride and my just wanting to be a good provider for my family. Uh, that's kind of just standing in the way of that. So I really wanted to be completely debt-free by the time we got married. Um, now, worldly speaking, that just couldn't happen, right? Um, you add up the numbers, I had a look at my, um, my budget, and it just it wasn't going to happen. So I just, I just prayed to God. I'm like, God, can you please get rid of this debt for me? Um, and there was just uh, there was something weird about this, like, this prayer. It was the... Like, it was actually the, f um, the first time I prayed for something like that, and I just, I actually just knew it was going to happen. I did, well, whatever it was, whether it happened or not, I didn't care. I just knew that God was going to have it sorted. And within two months, one of my little side projects had just by chance, well, not by chance, really, because we, we all know what, what the real reason was, um, but it, it had done so well for such a short amount of time that it completely paid that off in two months, plus all of the tax, plus extra to be generous with, and then just a little bit extra to, to, to play with. And, and I don't say that, I, please, um, believe me when I say I don't say that to kind of to build myself up because it was so clearly the provision of God. Um, and I just, in that moment, I was just so happy to put my confidence in God and just go, look, whatever, whether it happens or not, kind of just leave this up to you, this, this anxiety and stuff like that. And I stood on the promise that he would provide what I need 
Uh, and it turns out that he thought that that's probably what I needed. It might not have been the case if, uh, if he was trying to teach me some other lessons. Um, but yeah, it was, just, it was just phenomenal. But that was, a, that was a case of I really had to decide whether I was going to um, give in to the, um, the just like looking at my current situation and, the worldly look of, and, and, the, and looking at it through a worldly lens or if I was going to decide to put my confidence in God and his ability to provide for me. So that's encouragement. The, um, this tension between looking at the worldly stuff and our confidence in God can be a self-esteem thing or a self-image thing. In this day and age, we are bombarded with social media and all of everybody's best moments, all of their awesome holidays, all of their fluffy cats, all of their new cars, all of their smiling faces, all of their sunsets, all their sunrises, all that kind of stuff. But what we very rarely see are their struggles and their, and their hardships and their relationship breakdowns and, and all those other things that no one really wants to put out publicly. Um, so I feel like, and I've, the only reason I've picked these examples is because they're actually relevant to me. So, so hopefully um, you, you guys can resonate with some of these. Um, so sometimes it is really easy to get stuck in a cycle of thinking you're not good enough, you're not smart enough, you're not capable enough, you're comparing yourself to where somebody else is. And in these moments when we're confronted with that perception of ourselves, we can make a decision to listen to that um, or we can decide to turn to God and stand on what he thinks of us. And that, um, that he thinks that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That he, he knitted you together in your mother's womb, that you were made with intention and purpose because he wants you. And God, God knows you intimately. He sees you for who you are. He sees your struggles and he loves you unconditionally. I love uh, Romans 8.38, for I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all this creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So when you're struggling with these self-esteem issues, these self-image issues, um, do you, I guess, listen to that little unhelpful voice or that ad that's pointing out every single one of your flaws? Or do you remember what God thinks of you? And don't get me wrong, I know that it's not always as simple as just remembering this. I, I want to be very, very sensitive to that. I'm not saying that it's just like, oh, just do this. Um, I know that's, it's, not, it's not that easy. Um, but I do want to remind you of what God thinks. So, you're standing on the edge of this promised land. The land is good, but there's some big challenges ahead of you. What are you going to do? What are you going to decide? In Numbers 13.30, we read, um, so the Israelites have heard this report and they're starting to feel a bit angsty now. They're right, they're so close. They can taste this promised land that God has promised them. They've gone on this massive journey to get here. They've heard this report. You can imagine you'll probably be feeling a little bit panicky or um, stressed at, at what's to come. So let's, let's hear what their reaction was. So Caleb, in Numbers 13.30, Caleb quieted the people before Moses. Let us go up and occupy it at once, for we are well over able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people, uh, the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land 
through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants. And there, um, uh, and all the people we saw uh, in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we see, seemed ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seem to them. So the Israelites at this point are severely discouraged. They're so close, so close, but they feel like it's just going to be too hard to step into the promised land that God has for them. They start grumbling. They start worrying for their kids. Um, now, I don't have kids, but I can imagine that if you are facing these big giants and these fortresses, that I would probably be worrying about my kids and their, and their welfare as well. So um, I can kind of see where they're coming from. So at the moment, the danger and the task before them seems bigger than their confidence in God. Numbers 14, 5 to 9, we read, Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel, and Joshua the son of Nun, and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes. This is them in, in grief at, um, uh, at the Israelites giving up this promise so easily. And they said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, the land which we pass through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. So Caleb here is pleading with Israel not to turn their back on the promise that God has given them, this promised land. He has total confidence in God and his ability to come through on his promise. And he is ready to follow God wholeheartedly. And in fact, if you have a look at what um, people in the Bible say about Caleb when they're looking back on, it, on his life and they're talking about him, the thing that comes up more often than not is Caleb followed God wholeheartedly. That's what he was known for. So Israel wants to stone them. From then on, we see that they try and stone these guys, but God shows up at the tent of meeting. And the consequence of the Israelites turning their back on God is that they will now wander in the desert for 40 years. They've turned their back on the promise of God, and this is the consequence. Anyone over the age of 20 who was grumbling against God would die in the wilderness, and they wouldn't see the promised land, with two exceptions. And a bit further down in Numbers, we see that Joshua is one of the exceptions, so I'll leave that for Ben next week. But in Numbers 14, 22 to 24, we read, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit which has followed me fully, I will bring into the land which he went and his descendants shall possess it. So Willowburn, God has so many promises for us uh, in the Bible, the promises that he is with us, promises that he loves us, promises that he will provide for us, promises that he will help us. Um, and when it comes to crunch time, when it is really hard to see these promises, 
I urge you, just like Caleb was trying to urge Israel, don't let go of these promises when it is hard because God is bigger than circumstance. He's bigger than the tasks and whatever it is that is in front of you. I'm not belittling it at all. These Israelites were really facing their mortality and it was hard. Um, But Caleb was able to hang on to the promise of God and follow him wholeheartedly. So when it comes crunch time, need you face these hard things, what are you going to choose? Are you going to choose to look at all of the worldly stuff, all of what the world says, all of the, the difficulties, the, the real difficulties? I'm not, I'm not saying, oh, it's not going to be difficult. The real difficulties, are you going to look at those and are you going to turn your back on the promises of God because your confidence isn't in God? Are you going to turn to him and follow him wholeheartedly? So I have no doubt that it was extremely hard for Caleb. Um, He had to wander the desert for 40 years with the Israelites who were uh, grumbling, dissatisfied, um, unfaithful. They were whining. Um, Caleb was ready to go, but because of everybody else, he missed out on that first round. But he stuck it out for 40 years, 40 years. He was 40 when he went to be a spy. So he is now 80, 85 years old. And when it was time for them to go to the promised land, so they'd been in the wilderness for 40 years, um, he was 85, and on top of that 40 years in the wilderness, to actually get into the promised land, he had to fight wars for five years at 85 years old. And we read, I think it's in uh, uh, Joshua, that he, he was like, just as he said, I'm as vigorous as I was 40 years ago when I was ready to enter the promised land then, I'm ready to do it now. So this is a man who, for 40 years, didn't let go of this promise of God, which is just, oh, it's just awesome. Love this dude. His, actually, when I was reading through, you know how like the Bible is just full of guys and they seem like really, really cool, but then there's always this like little kind of bit that goes and you're just like, oh, that wasn't too cool. Maybe it's just, it, it's absolutely just because there isn't as much recorded about Caleb as, as many other people, because he's definitely fallible. But in the Bible, I can't really see too many things uh, about Caleb. Actually, I couldn't see any about Caleb where it's like, oh, Caleb was a bit of a weirdo. This guy's really awesome. I'm sure he struggled. He's human. He was fallible. But he's a really cool dude to, to look at. Um, well. So Caleb, he didn't hesitate. When he had a look at the, the land and saw the spies, he's like, let's go take it at once. We can do it. God is with us. He was courageous. He was absolutely seeing all the dangers and stuff before him, and he was still happy to, to go head on in. Um, and my final point is that he, oh, no, where has he gone? Didn't hesitate. He was courageous. He, never, he was persistent. He never let go of God's promise. After 40 years, he's still there. And as soon as it's time for them to go, he's like, yep, 85 years old, let's go take, take this land. It's really, really cool. Um, now, we've talked a, like, a little bit about applications and like, the monetary side of things and all that. Um, back to my little Mulberry story. Um, one of the things I remember most vividly about my Mulberry story was the ride home. Uh, I remember we were seeing that amazing green Datsun Ute, Kermit the Frog was his affectionate name. My pop had a ute called a Kermit the Frog, so I've got to own, own one at some point. Um, that's, that's neither here nor there. Um, and we were driving back, and I was actually by Kelly's Corner again. That place must have had some like really deep roots in my childhood. Uh, but we're driving past there, um, and the thing that I remember most about this drive home is that my dad said he was proud of me. 
which is all, you can see the smile on my face. I'm just like, ah. Oh. For that 10-year-old little kid, that was my kind of worldly moment of, well done, good and faithful servant. It was excellent. It made it so worth it, so worth it. So even if you don't see the, even if you do think you need money, but God doesn't think you need money, and you don't see that tangible thing, I tell you what, all the hardship, all of the, the struggles, all the risk, all of that kind of stuff, it's going to be totally worth it when you get to go to heaven and you hear, well done, good and faithful. So that's, um, yeah, that's, that's what I kind of got out of Caleb. I would like to finish this sermon with a poem that I found by an anonymous source online about Caleb because I just thought it was really, really cool. And so this is a poem about Caleb. He stood before Joshua with flashing eyes. Give me this mountain before I die. But Caleb, you're old, and this mountain is high. Just choose a peaceful spot on this plain to die. The people who live in the mountain are strong. The battle you fight will be bloody and long. His eyes never wavered as he spoke without fear. I've been promised this mountain for 45 years. And as for the people being mighty and tall, the bigger they are, the harder they'll fall. For it's not in my strength on which I'm counting, for the Lord is going to give me that mountain. So let's quit talking while it's still light, for the Lord and I have a battle. I just thought it was really cool. <laughs> a really cool poem. Amen. Amen. I just thought, oh man, here's a guy who is just willing to follow God wholeheartedly in the face of all of the trials that he had before him. He didn't hesitate. He was courageous and he held on to the promises of God. So that's what I want to leave you with, Willowburn. That's what I want to encourage you with. It's good. So as we, oh, good, someone set up communion for me. Thank you, <laughs> whoever that was. So as we head to communion, we too have a decision to make, just like uh, the Israelites did. And I think just given the content of the passage that we are at today, we have this like, um, they're like, we can choose to follow God or we can choose not to follow God. And I think that just because of this passage really kind of talked about the consequences of not following God versus the consequences of following God, I feel like it'd just be a bit remiss of me to kind of just focus on one. So we as Christians have a decision as to whether we are going to be pulled towards the temptations of this world, whether we are going to turn our back on the, the hardships and the challenges that come with being a Christian. Um, we have a decision to either turn towards that or turn towards God. Um, and when I was thinking about, uh, like the Bible makes it very clear what happens if, if you don't. Now I don't want to, I'm not going to, don't worry, I'm not going to end on this. I'm not going to leave you in a down note. But one of the things that I was thinking is, uh, regardless of what you think hell is going to be like, right in the very beginning of Genesis when we were created, what were we created for? What was our job? To have dominion over the earth? Yep. To look after God's garden, to look after his creation, to have a relationship with him. At the very least, but probably the very most, the alternative to not turning to God is being completely cut off for your purpose for all eternity, which... I don't want to scare you, all right, because there is a very different side to this that I'm going to focus on to end with, but I just, I don't know, I was just thinking about it. I, I know a lot of you guys, so maybe I am just talking to the people online, but um, we do have a very important choice to make. It's the, the, the biggest decision we're ever going to have to make in this life. Um, but the alternative to that, and I don't even want you to focus on that, because in light of the alternative, that just doesn't even, doesn't even really matter. The alternative is that, um, that we have a God that loved us so 
so deeply. He created us with purpose and intent because he wanted us. And he didn't want to be apart from us, so he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that we could live with him for eternity, doing exactly what we were designed to do for all eternity. Um, and that is just, it's just the greatest gift we could ever hope to receive. I say that every single time I'm on communion, and I still believe it is the greatest gift that we've ever been given, that our, um, our God isn't one that would just kind of start the world and let it run and just see how it ends up, that he is he's part of our lives. He wants to be part of our lives. He, he loves us so, so much that he sent his son to die for us. And as we come to think about um, communion, maybe you have made the decision to, to follow God, maybe you haven't. But as we come to communion and we think on what God has done for us, we remember we do have a loving God. That he is with us. That he loves us. And, and he died for us.